All right, welcome back to the conversation. This evening, we're gonna be joined by Megan Kimball, who's the executive editor of the Texas Observer. She has a piece that was published jointly by the nation and the Texas Observer this this month that focuses on the overlooked topic of highway removal. Megan, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me. For sure. So, talk talk a little bit about what what highway removal is exactly. Yeah, I mean it's exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of tearing down highways, specifically in urban areas. So, um, listeners might know that in 1956, the Federal Highway Act. Um, dedicated an enormous amount of money to building the interstate highway system. And many of those interstates were built through urban areas, predominantly black and Hispanic communities that had been redlined a decade earlier by the Homeowners Loan Corporation. So the Federal Highway Act did a lot of harm in urban areas to black and Hispanic neighborhoods, cutting them in half. Almost half a million people lost their homes over the decade after the Federal Highway Act passed. Um, fast forward 50 years, many of those highways are now reaching the end of their sort of planned lives. So um, they're reaching functional obsolescence. They're cracking, they're kind of tearing down. Something needs to be done about these highways. And so what state departments of transportation are doing is saying, hey, let's rebuild them and our cities are growing. So let's build them back wider and higher. Um, and that's a bad reason for lots of reasons, which we can talk about later. But kind of data shows that that doesn't actually fix traffic. You expand a highway and cars will rush to fill it up. So what advocates kind of across the country are asking is what if we tore down those urban highways and figured out a way to get around get, get people around differently, invest the billions and billions of dollars that were going to invest in highways and transit and alternate forms of transportation in our city specifically. And your, your story has some real eye popping numbers that I hadn't really thought about until, until I saw those. In other words, if these highways are, are running through you know, major urban areas, which, which of course they are, and they're, and they're taking up this massive amount of cumulative space, that if you remove those and and replace them with you know residential homes with with apartments with retail, the the the, the kind of economic boom and the 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 property tax boom to the cities was was uh, was just extraordinary. Um, so what the, I think the the first question kind of like a normie would ask would be like, okay, well then, how do we get home? Yeah, what happens to traffic? That's what everyone asks, right? Um, And that's a really good question. Um, And you know, studies have shown that um, you know, if the kind of thing that I was mentioning earlier, when you widen the highway, cars will come fill it up. Mm. Traffic engineers call that induced demand. Um, You know, you make it cheaper, easier to access, more people will use it. Well, the same can also be true. People have argued that if you make it harder for people to drive, fewer people will drive. They will change their behavior. They will get around differently. Um, And so. Essentially, a lot of discretionary trips will disappear if you make tear down a highway that a lot of people have been using. Um, you can make it easier for people to get around by transit. So the sort of famous example is in 1989, um, the, the Loma Prieta earthquake destroyed the Embarcadero Freeway. And so for a while, for a few years, it was fun, it was useless. It couldn't be used. And so city leaders were trying to figure out what to do with it. And, and you know, there was this sort of predicted Carmageddon. There were gonna be these huge traffic jams in San Francisco. And they simply didn't materialize. People maneuvered around it. Bus ridership increased 15%, um, and people didn't take trips that maybe they didn't need to take. 
um, didn't go to the store maybe twice a week, they went once a week. So a lot of traffic simply evaporates. Our surface grid, our surface grid of streets can absorb a lot more traffic than people think it can. And that's what's been sort of studied in Dallas more specifically. Um, so traffic is definitely a big question, but I think that um, studies have shown that it, these sort of crazy traffic jams simply don't materialize. Where have they successfully done this and what's what's been the result? Yeah, so most recently Rochester tore down half of their inner loop in 2017 and the city is now considering tearing down the rest of it. Um, and there what they found is you know, the land that was liberated from this highway has created infill housing, affordable housing. So there's been a lot of community benefit created from this land. Um, you know, That's a highway that was not being used to full capacity. Um, whereas some of the highways in Texas that I talk about in my story you know, are absolutely at capacity. Um, the highway in Dallas that I mentioned, I-345, has been studied in terms of how much land that impacts. And it's in my story, I cite the, a study that someone there has done at 245 acres. And so that's an enormous amount of sort of development potential in the core of downtown Dallas, which is you know the ninth most populous city in the country that's sort of been assumed by this highway that could potentially be turned over for property tax revenue. Um, so Milwaukee also removed part of their highway downtown and a similar thing happened, You know, it took a little bit longer, but development has eventually come to that area. So what do people think about this in Dallas? Are are they able to get their head around the idea? Like what, once, the, once, once they get over their fear and see, wait, wait a minute, we could have instead of this ugly highway here that is uh, that is miserable to be on anyway, we could we could actually you know de- develop this into something that would be useful for the city. Is is that appealing enough to people in Dallas to get it taken seriously, or is there so much fear around? Well, my goodness, how are we gonna? How will we ever get anywhere? Yeah, I think it's mixed. I mean, there is certainly business owners and property developers understand the economic potential. So does the city, the property tax base that could be created from all this development. You know, there's a lot of revenue that could be generated that could then go to community benefit like parks or community land trusts or affordable housing. I think because Dallas is so much a city built around the car, a lot of people are hesitant. Hey, you're going to cut off this channel of access to my job. So in and South Dallas is where many people, lower income people and people of color live. And North Dallas is where many of the jobs are. And so I was up there for a community meeting last month. And a lot of people said, hey, you're going to cut off my access to my job. Like that's sort of an insult to me when you sort of redlined us to these neighborhoods half a century ago. Right. So what do you do about that? Because that's that's a real thing. Like we we we've pushed you out of the city. Um, a lot of cities have this. They, they they push everyone who makes a low wage far away from the city center, and then and then force them to come back into the city center to work those uh, low wage jobs. So so what what was there anything satisfactory that could be uh, could be said to to those workers? Yeah, I mean I think there's sort of two things. The first is the state of Texas is planning to spend $25 billion over the next few years expanding highways. Think of how much transit could be built with $25 billion. Um, So that's a really great way to get people to work, which is actually a cheaper way to get to work. Owning a car is incredibly expensive. So that's sort of a a kind of a short term fix. A longer term fix is thinking about how do we use and develop that land. So turning it over to a community land trust, which creates permanently affordable housing by separating the ownership of a structure from the land, putting that land in community control managed by a nonprofit. And you could bring people back closer to the center of the city, you know, those who want to move, who want to be closer to the core of the city. You could give them that opportunity through community land trust or any kind of other community benefits agreement. why would yeah proposition? Why wouldn't the the public trans, transit take up as much space as the highway? Well, people take up fewer space than cars, right? So when you're in your mm-hmm. car, 
taking up you know eight square feet of space. When you're a person on a train, you take up far far fewer space. So there's actually a really good graphic that kind of urbanists love to to tweet about. You know, 50 people on a highway takes up a whole stretch of highway, and you can clump those people together, and it's just a really small area that you could fit in a bus. And so moving people by transit is just a much more efficient way to move people around, especially in crowded cities where space is at a premium. What about Austin? What's being contemplated there? Right, so I-35 is our big interstate that goes through the middle of Austin. TxDOT, the Texas Department of Transportation has released plans that show an expansion. It's a currently 12 lane highway, they wanna make it 20 lanes. So an expansion of eight lanes. Some of those would be tunneled and buried so it wouldn't increase footprint. We don't know how much it's gonna increase the footprint actually. Texas current proposal, there are community groups here who are advocating to, there are two sort of different visions. One is to tear out the highway completely and create a boulevard and route a lot of the interstate traffic to the eastern edge of the city. And then the other one is to sort of effectively tunnel the highway, creating a cap over most of central Austin and making a surface boulevard that people could bike on and walk across and have buses on. So those are the sort of two community proposals. The question is whether or not TxDOT is gonna take them seriously. Um. So you were also writing your piece about how, you know, starting from the premise that you know black and mostly black, but black and brown communities were devastated by by highway construction throughout the fifties and sixties, and then you asked the question, well, how do we make sure that this is done in a way so that so that those those communities are not left out, and so how. How consciously and how intentionally is this is this being taken? Is this is is that where a lot of the affordable housing proposals come from? I mean, what 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 can be done because it 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 does look like there's a risk that you could you could see this end up with sort of like a hipster playground, and we would say, well, that's nice, it's better than a highway, but man, it's kind of gross. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a way that this just benefits money developer interests who are already in city cores. And so I think having that reparative justice, I mean, people are talking about turning land back over to the communities who are originally harmed as a form of reparation. So that word has come up in conversations with people who are consenting on highway removals. And that's where I think the sort of the ownership of that land and what happens to that land, the people who were originally displaced who may live far away in the suburbs, but they need to be at the table and they need to have an ownership stake in what happens to that and actually benefit from its removal. Well, Megan Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on the conversation. Really, really interesting story, really interesting idea. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the conversation. We're joined now by Shahid Buttar, who is a social justice, longtime social justice activist, a former challenger to Nancy Pelosi last cycle and launching another campaign this time around against Speaker Pelosi in her San Francisco district. Shahid, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's great to be with you. For sure. And so you, you, you and I were talking recently about a phenomenon that uh, that 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 I've noticed in in my coverage of a lot of different primaries that e- that even when a candidate uh, falls short, uh, there can there can be real benefits to uh, you know to that uh, you know to the public of of that campaign. And I was one of one of the the the, the most powerful examples that that uh, jumps out in front of me is that uh, Sarah Smith, if you remember, challenged uh, Representative Adam Smith. In in Washington, he was the still is really the chairman of the Armed Services Committee and a rather hawkish uh, Democrat. But she managed to make it into the top two 
uh, top two primary system that the same as California has the top top two go on rather than it being a traditional primary. And because she was challenging him constantly and particularly on his on, on his, his unwillingness to stand up against the war in Yemen, he ended up becoming a cheerleader for a resolution um, you know that Rokana pushed to to uh, to basically try to force the 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 hand of the Trump administration to to end end that war and got a war powers resolution through the House of Representatives. She ended up getting hammered um, in the general election, uh, but but left 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 a real legacy. It, it, it didn't end the war, uh, but but it but it did set back the the the, the war making cause. Like it, it was a real blow. Um, to the you know the the U.S. Saudi Arabia UAE UAE effort over there, and so as you watched Pelosi position herself throughout throughout your campaign, what were the most noticeable shifts that 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 you saw her take last time around? I'd call out six of them, and you're absolutely right to observe the opportunity for campaigns that might even prove electorally unsuccessful to shift the needle and move the policy ball forward. And when I look at our campaign last year, there's a top line that jumps out at me and that's having won 81,000 votes against the most powerful voice in Congress. It's 30% more votes than anyone's ever won against her. And what you're drawing attention to here, I describe as the bottom line, the ultimate outcome of the policymaking process. And there were generational advances in both workplace organizing rights and justice in policing that passed the House last year, despite Pelosi's initial opposition. And I'm not gonna claim sole credit for her shift because frankly, I think social movements and labor had a big deal to do with that. But it is striking to me that the first time in her 34 year career that Nancy Pelosi showed up for any of those issues or the bill that funded the Postal Service or that Warps Powers Amendment that you described or either of the presidential impeachment resolutions, that all required her facing another Democrat for the first time. And I don't think of that as circumstantial. I do see that the, the passage of the Protecting Right to Organize Act through the House as one of our, frankly, most enduring achievements. And I'm quite confident that Pelosi would not have seen fit to embrace labor if she didn't have the sharp threat of an electoral challenge lighting a fire under her. What's the campaign looking like this time around? Are there are there other challengers in, in the race? And, and what, what makes you think that you'll fare better this time around? Uh, than last time. There are other challengers. I think the real reason I'll fare better this time around is what political scientists describe as name recognition. The increasing awareness in the district of the alternative that we present. And I would say that relative to not just the other challengers in this race, but relative to frankly many members of Congress, I do have a fair depth of experience and expertise that I dare say will prove quite helpful, particularly in the context of challenging authoritarianism. I see a bipartisan threat to democracy in the United States. And it's presented on issues from mass surveillance to executive secrecy, our belligerent foreign policy, xenophobic immigration enforcement policies within the United States, predatory policing, mass incarceration. These are issues that all intersect. There are issues that go very much to the heart of the oath of office, the commitment to defend the constitution against all enemies, not just foreign, but particularly the domestic ones too. 
And too many policymakers, frankly, don't even understand the Constitution enough in order to recognize when it's implicated, let alone take meaningful action to defend it. And that's all I've ever done. I've spent 20 years following those prongs of the oath of office without an office. And you know, when I look at most people in politics, they do what is popular. And the reason I think I'll perform better than last year and the other people that I might face in this race is simply that I don't do what's popular. I've never done what's popular. When I was fighting to establish marriage equality for my LGBTQ neighbors, it wasn't popular. Nancy Pelosi did not support it. None of the Democrats did, with the exception of our current governor. When I was fighting police departments around the country to challenge racial profiling policies well before the Ferguson uprising, that on the ground where we were doing it was popular, but certainly among Democrats it was not. You know, I've taken a lot of positions that have forced me to fight the Democratic establishment. And that willingness to do the hard, unpopular, necessary thing, I think is particularly why we're gonna do well in this cycle. I also wanted to ask you about some news that you made today. Yeah. Your defamation suit that you've launched against the San Francisco Chronicle. You know, you've been, no secret, you've been, you've been publicly critical of the, of the Intercept for some of its coverage of the race. But the criticism that you leveled at the, at the Chronicle in this, in this suit seemed leagues, leagues beyond it. Why, you know, so, so why, why the Chronicle and, and tell, tell people what, what this suit is about and and have you gotten any any response uh, yet either you know from the public or from the Chronicle? No response yet. We just filed uh, in the last 24 hours. The suit ultimately aims to defend the democratic process and election integrity from the publication of racist election disinformation known to be false by the journalists who published it. And that's what happened at the Chronicle. And it's one reason, frankly, I am grateful for your work as a journalist because you were the journalist who ultimately debunked the accusations that the Chronicle printed uncritically twice, you know, publishing incredibly defamatory, damaging allegations by a person with a long history of false politically motivated accusation that was known to the Chronicle before they published. Now, you know, when I look at, you asked about the intercept too, and I would just note I super appreciate your coverage in the race. I have not been nearly as impressed by your colleagues. And, you know, you discovered, for instance, that one of the people who had falsely accused me of other things admitted to their false accusation while your colleague continued to platform their voices as if they had any credibility. And to catch political operatives who you've noticed in your subsequent reporting are not reliable observers of campaign, you know, there are people with their own interests and careers at stake. And the conflicts of interest by the sources who Akella Lacey quoted were not disclosed. There was a critical whistleblower who she suppressed for an entire year. And the Chronicle as well, who just published her report last week. And as Gloria Berry, who's an elected official on the Democratic Party County Central mm-hmm. Committee here establishes, people I had hired and then replaced from the local Democratic Party establishment, they were responsible for all of these lies. They orchestrated the presentation in the press of information that they also knew to be false for political purposes. And you can't falsely accuse a man of color without implicating white supremacy. It's intrinsic in the accusation. And that's what the Chronicle promoted. And frankly, election integrity demands ethical journalism. And that's why we're filing this. Yeah, and separate from the specific issue of the Chronicle and that one particular non non credible person who made who made the the allegation on on Medium. One of the one of the challenges that 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 you faced, kind of from a PR perspective, 
was was as you just said that that these were former staff. You know, if if they were just if they were just activists in the city or people who had who had known you or any or anything other than you know former campaign staff, I think the media would have would have treated this situation differently. There's kind of a a, I don't know if deference is the word, but there is there is a a credibility given to um, former staff who 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 speak on the record. You know that that that, that there, there's kind of a presumption that uh, regardless that those people are entitled, um, you know, to have a to have a platform to air whatever grievance they have, since because they they previously were you know working for a particular candidate. Since then, we've seen you know a number of of instances where where Campaign staff, either either current or former, but sometimes even current, are are yeah. public are publicly attacking their own their own candidates. Hassan Lecky running in a in a Boston congressional race. Then we saw Diane Morales and uh, running in 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 New York in New York City. So um, perhaps these are these incidents are becoming uh, you know more common. Uh, so I'm wondering, as you're running again, you know, how do you how you know? How are you thinking about hiring and building a team, uh, given the experience that you had last time around? Great question. Ultimately, one of the reasons I think former staff are given that credibility is they presented themselves as workers. When you and I both know that the workers on political campaigns are the volunteers, <clears throat> and it was my volunteers who my former staff were marginalizing. So I was defending workers against people who basically have the role of management consultants. That's what political campaign staff are. They're people who are paid to participate. They don't take on political risk. So they're the most privileged people in the process. So the idea that they're allowed any deference to me, frankly, is farcical. I can't hire people from San Francisco's Democratic Party. That's the long and short of it. So we'll have to leave it there for now, but we'd love to have you back on the on the conversation again soon. Best of luck in your in your campaign, Shahid. Thank you for joining us on the conversation. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's great to be with you.